Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Well, after telling um, how the angel Gabriel announced the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth, Luke is now describing how that very same angel announced the birth of Jesus to Mary. Look at verses 26 and 27. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Notice uh, six details that are written in these two verses. First, notice the timing of Gabriel's visit. Uh, He appeared to Mary when Elizabeth was six months pregnant. So this wasn't very long after Gabriel had visited Zacharias. Second, notice the authority Gabriel carries. Verse 26 says that the angel Gabriel was sent by God. Was sent by God. And we shouldn't think, therefore, that uh, Gabriel's words are anything less than the authoritative word of God. God told Gabriel what to speak, and so Gabriel had been vested with the authority of God. Third, notice the place where Gabriel was sent. God sent him to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Galilee was the region, Nazareth was the city, and so this is like saying God sent Gabriel to the uh, to, to a city in, the, in Sacramento County named Elk Grove. Fourth, notice the person Gabriel was sent to. Verse 27 says that he was sent to a woman named Mary. And fifth, notice that Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And Joseph was of the house of David. Betrothal was similar to what we today call engagement, only it was much more binding than what our practice of engagement is today. When a man and woman became betrothed, they still lived independent from each other. They would live independent of each other until the day that they actually became married. But the betrothal agreement was so binding that to break that agreement or to separate Uh, that couple uh, could only be affected by death or divorce. And and sixth, notice that Mary is a virgin. Uh, Not only does verse 27 establish this point, but it's repeated again in verse 34. Now these six details are necessary for us to make sense of what follows. Some, Some of these details may seem insignificant at first, but they're important for us to understand the narrative of, the, of our sermon text. Uh, for example, look at the beginning of verse 28 and notice how Gabriel enters Mary's home. Uh, he simply enters in. He doesn't knock on the door. He didn't ask permission to come in, nor did he receive any kind of invitation from Mary. Gabriel simply entered Mary's home and began speaking to her. He said, rejoice, Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And how did Mary respond to this intrusion into her privacy? Verse 29, 
But when Mary saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Ask yourself, what gives Gabriel the right to barge into people's homes and invade their privacy? Well, it's because Gabriel has been vested with the authority of God. And this is one of those six details that Luke laid out in verses 26 and 27. Gabriel was on a mission from God. He was sent at this specific time to this specific place to this specific woman to speak a specific message from the Lord. And so without any invitation or consent from Mary, Gabriel did what the Lord told him to do. And this is an example of the Lord's sovereign election. Now, children, boys and girls, uh, if you don't know what sovereign election means, let me explain it to you. The word sovereign means having supreme power or authority. So when we speak of God being sovereign, we say that God has absolute power, absolute authority, and absolute control over all aspects of creation. We're saying that God is the supreme ruler and independent uh, of, of anybody's desires or any, anything, any other aspect of creation. God determines everything that happens in the universe. And when we speak of the Lord's election, we're talking about the Lord choosing certain individuals to, to be the recipients of his grace. Out of the whole human race, God chooses certain individuals to be the recipients of his grace and certain individuals to be the recipients of his justice. And this election uh, and it, it is, is uh, according to God's own free purpose and his will. In other words, God's election is sovereign. God has the supreme power and authority to say, I'm gonna give my grace to this person and to that person, but not to these other people. That's God's prerogative as a sovereign governor of, the, of creation. Now, let me take this one step further. God's sovereign election not only determines who receives his grace, but it also determines the measure of grace a person receives. In other words, not everybody, not every person receives, receives the same measure of grace. Now, in saying this, I need to be very careful to qualify what I'm saying because um, we can easily become confused or misled in this matter. When God elects a sinner to salvation, he liberally gives his grace to accomplish that person's full and complete justification. We never, we, we, we never wanna suggest that some Christians are more justified than other Christians. No, when God declares a person to be righteous in Christ, that person is 100% righteous in Christ. Every Christian enjoys this same status. Yet when it comes to the callings and giftings that we receive from the Lord, he doesn't always give the same measure of grace in these callings and giftings. Ephesians 4, 7 says, but to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in the following verses, it becomes clear that the, that the grace uh, being written about pertains to one's calling and gifting. Because it goes on to say that God has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and so on. 
And likewise, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, in the context of describing the spiritual gifts that are given by the Spirit, verse 11 says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Distributing to each one individually as he, the Spirit, wills. So when I say that Gabriel's abrupt intrusion into Mary's privacy is an example of God's sovereign election, I'm saying a couple different things. I'm saying because the Lord is sovereign, he doesn't need Mary's permission to enter into the private affairs of her life. God has the power and authority to do whatever he wills with her. And I'm saying that because of the Lord's election, he has chosen according to the free purpose of his will to give grace to Mary. And what Gabriel is revealing in, the, in his greeting to Mary is that God has chosen to give an uncommonly high measure of grace to Mary. In his greeting, Gabriel describes Mary as being highly favored. The literal translation of this word in verse 28 means much graced, much graced. Gabriel is telling Mary that she is a woman who is much graced of God. And notice Mary's response to Gabriel. Verse 29 says that she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Now normally when we read in the scriptures of an angel appearing to a human, the human's response is to be frightened, indeed terrified, Uh, And then the angel, in in all such cases, will say something to the effect of, don't be afraid, and then give some form of affirmation or encouragement or assurance. Um, That happened here with Gabriel and Mary as well. In verse 37, Gabriel says those exact words to Mary, do not be afraid. So it's apparent that Mary was frightened to some degree when Gabriel made a sudden appearance in her home. But our sermon text, interestingly, our sermon text does not focus on that part of Mary's reaction. Rather, it focuses on her bewilderment that Gabriel addressed her as a woman who is much graced by the Lord. She was trying to make sense of what he meant when he said to her, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. It's good and proper that we join with Mary in contemplating what manner of greeting this is because Gabriel's greeting has become the subject of much controversy, not only today, but even in the history of of the Christian church. Uh, As you're probably aware, the Roman Catholic Church has a prayer which is called the Hail Mary. Uh, This prayer begins, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. As you probably uh, can detect, the, the first two parts of the Hail Mary prayer are taken from Scripture. The first part comes from Luke one twenty eight, which is Gabriel's greeting to Mary that we're reading here in our sermon text. And the second part comes from Luke one forty two, which is Elizabeth's greeting of Mary. Now, some of the controversy over the Hail Mary prayer has to do with how it's used in Roman Catholicism. Uh, Because it's part of the Holy Rosary, Catholics are taught to pray this prayer repetitively. 
And each time they pray through the rosary, they'll pray the Hail Mary prayer 53 times, 10 times in a row. And then they'll pray an Our Father. And then they'll pray 10 more Hail Marys right in a row. And they'll pray another Our Father. And they'll do this five consecutive times and then end with three more Hail, Hail Marys. Protestants protest against this practice citing Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount as prohibiting this type of prayer as vain repetition. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So there's a a controversy concerning the repetitive uh, use of this prayer as Roman Catholics have, have been known to use it. But beyond the controversy concerning vain repetitions is a controversy over the translation of Luke 128. Many Catholic translators render Gabriel's greeting differently than Protestant translators do. If you look at verse 28, your Bible probably has Gabriel referring to Mary as highly favored one or just favored one. But Catholic translators have Gabriel referring to Mary as full of grace. Now, theologically, there's a big difference between being highly favored and being full of grace. To be highly favored means Mary was a woman whom God had given an uncommon measure of grace to. And as we've seen, that's God's prerogative. As in his sovereign election, he can give whatever measure of grace he wants to people. And so in the case of Mary, she's highly favored, which means he gave an extraordinarily uncommon measure of grace to Mary. But to say that Mary is full of grace, as the Roman Catholics would teach this, is for Mary, is is to say or to claim that Mary has always been in a state of sinlessness, that Mary has always been in a state of perfect obedience and sinlessness ever since her conception. And this is exactly what Pope Francis explains in a homily that he delivered in 2017 at a feast held in honor of the Virgin Mary. Pope Francis said, today we are contemplating the, the beauty of Mary Immaculate. The gospel, which recounts the episode of the Annunciation, helps us to understand what we are celebrating above uh, all through the angel's greeting he addresses Mary with a word that is not easy to translate, which means filled with grace, created by grace, full of grace, Luke one twenty-eight. Before calling her Mary, he calls her full of grace and thus reveals the new name that God has given her and which is more becoming to her than the name given to her by her parents. We too call her in this way with each Hail Mary. What does full of grace mean? That Mary is filled with the presence of God. And if she is entirely inhabited by God, there is no room within her for sin. It is an extraordinary thing because everything in the world, regrettably, is contaminated by evil. Each of us, looking within ourselves, sees dark sides. Even the greatest saints were sinners. And everything in reality, even the most beautiful things, are corroded by evil everything except Mary. 
She is the one evergreen oasis of humanity, the only one uncontaminated, created immaculate, so as to fully welcome with her yes, God who came into the world and thus began, uh, thus to begin a new history. Each time we acknowledge her as full of grace, we give her the greatest compliment, the same one God had given her. And so you'll notice that Pope Francis um, makes an admission uh, there at the beginning of that quotation. He acknowledges that the word in question pertaining to how Gabriel and, uh, addressed her, that word, he says, is not easy to translate. Going back, Pope Francis said, Gabriel addresses Mary with a word that is not easy to translate, which means filled with grace, created by grace, full of grace. Let me just say that um, sometimes Greek words are difficult to translate because there's not an equivalent word or phrase in the English language that allows for the translation process to be smooth. But other times, words are difficult to translate because the translator has a preconceived notion of what he wants a text to say, but the actual words of the text do not accommodate the the desired meaning. And so, yes, it is not easy to make a word say what the translators want it to say when the actual meaning of the word says something else. And that's what's happening when the Roman Catholic translators uh, are trying to translate Gabriel's message or Gabriel's greeting to Mary. Gabriel addresses her as one who is much graced, one who is highly favored, not one who is full of grace. And the difference here is between a sinful person who, according to the sovereign election of God, has received an, an uncommon measure of grace, and a sinless person who is so full of grace that she functions as an intercessor for sinners and those who pray to her. That's the, that's the difference. By the 12th century uh, AD, the Hail Mary prayer was in widespread use within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but understand that in the 12th century, the prayer only consisted of these two quotations from Luke 128 and 142. That was the entire prayer. Uh, all, but then as heresies concerning the person and work of Mary um, continue to evolve within the Catholic Church, uh, the Hail Mary prayer was then expanded. By the 16th century, it included a petition for Mary to make intercession on behalf of the person praying. And this is the form of the prayer that Catholics use today. Uh, when they pray the Hail Mary prayer, they, they still pray the two quotations from Luke 1, but then they conclude the prayer with the words, Holy, Mother, uh, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, amen. And I hope you can see, brothers and sisters, that there are some serious errors, in fact, heresies that exist within the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on the person and work of Mary. The Protestant reformers of the 16th century rightly discerned that Rome was practicing Mariolatry, which is the idolatrous worship of, of the person of Mary. 
Uh, and much of this Mariolatry developed from a bad translation of Gabriel's greeting in, Rome, uh, in Luke 1.28. Gabriel is not saying that Mary is full of grace. Rather, he's declaring that she has received special favor from God. And so we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is that special favor? What is it that Gabriel is saying that Mary was receiving from God as a, as a special grace that was uncommon? Well, that's the question Mary was asking herself. This is what she was pondering when she was trying to discern the manner of Gabriel's greeting. And so Gabriel gave her the information that she, she was searching for. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will receive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So in short, Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. For 4,000 years, women had been hoping that they would give birth to the Messiah. Ever since the Garden of Eden, where God first prophesied that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, women had been longing for the privilege to bear the promised Messiah. It's probable that Eve, when she gave birth to Cain in Genesis 4.1, mistakenly thought that she had given birth to the, the promised seed. She exclaimed, uh, or her exclamation um, recorded there in, in Genesis 4.1, is that she had acquired a man from the Lord. And this can be uh, understood by, and it is understood by some biblical scholars to be a celebration that the prophecy God had made in the garden had just been fulfilled with the birth of Cain. Uh, so whether that's the case or not, it, it's very clear and evident from reading the, the Old Testament that for 4,000 years, godly women had been hoping for the privilege of bearing the Messiah into this world. And now Mary is being told by the angel Gabriel, who's speaking to her with the authority of God, that she is going to bear the Messiah into this world. That is the, the manner of Gabriel's greeting. That is what he was referring to when he declared that Mary is highly favored by God. God is giving her uh, a, a privileged position that women for 4,000 years have desired to, to, to attain to. And he's given it to Mary. She is indeed highly favored. Sometimes receiving an answer to a question elicits more questions. And that was certainly the case with Mary. She went from wondering why Gabriel was saying that she's highly favored of God to wondering how she can be the mother of a child because Mary understood where babies come from and she knew that she had not been with a man. And so she's trying to piece this mystery together in her finite mind. Uh, look at her response in verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And Mary's response does not indicate a lack of faith. Zacharias's response, which we looked at uh, previously, his response indicated a lack of faith. When he was told that Elizabeth was going to bear a son, his response was, how shall I know this? Right? Zacharias was basically saying to Gabriel, you say that my wife is going to bear a child, but how can I know that what you're saying is really true? 
Mary wasn't challenging the truth of what Gabriel had just spoken to her. She accepted that what he said is true. But she was confused how it could and would happen. So she asks for clarification. She asks, uh, how can this be since I do not know a man? Gabriel then explained in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now the term overshadow may be a word that you're not entirely familiar with. If I asked you to explain what it means to be overshadowed, you might be challenged to provide an answer that you're confident with. Um, but know that this is the same exact same Greek term that Luke uses to describe the cloud that descended upon the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, while Peter was suggesting that uh, they could make three tabernacles on top of the mountain, we read in Luke 9.34 that a cloud came and overshadowed them. It's the same word. A cloud descended upon the mountain, Mount of Transfiguration and overshadowed them. We don't have much of a problem when reading about the, the Transfiguration to make the connection between the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration with the glory cloud that appeared in the Old Testament. We read of the glory cloud appearing in several places in the Old Testament. Uh, it was in the wilderness, uh, on Mount Sinai. It was uh, in the most holy place of the tabernacle at the dedication of the first temple, of Solomon's temple, and so forth. We know that from these Old Testament incidents that the glory cloud represents God's presence with his people. And so when the glory cloud descended upon the Mount of Transfiguration, we interpret this in the same way that we interpret those Old Testament manifestations of the cloud. God is making his presence known in a special way. And this interpretation is immediately confirmed in Luke 9.35, which says, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. There, that's at the transfiguration. And so the, the overshadowing that's being described to Mary is Gabriel's way of telling her that God is going to be present with her in a special way. This is not intended to be a scientific explanation of how Mary is going to conceive it's simply a way of telling her that the Spirit of God is going to perform a miracle in her body, and so she's going to conceive without the involvement of a man. We're not told, but we can certainly speculate, and I think it's quite probable that when God performed this miracle in Mary's body, that the glory cloud would have descended and appeared and covered her body at that time when the miracle was being accomplished. That would be consistent with every other incident recorded in the scriptures when God overshadowed somebody or something. Now, why is Gabriel underscoring this point to Mary? And why is Luke emphasizing this as such an important part of the narrative in our sermon text? Because the virgin birth of Jesus is essential to the purpose of his incarnation. The virgin birth of Jesus is essential to the purpose of his incarnation, which was to come and make redemption for God's elect. There are many professing Christians today who, who are willing to write off the virgin birth of Jesus as a myth. 
They say that it's not scientifically possible for a virgin to conceive and give birth, so they dismiss what the Bible says about the miraculous conception of Jesus. They, they say it's a myth, it's a, it's a pedagogical tool that the ancients used, but we shouldn't take this seriously. But that's a tragedy, brothers and sisters. To think such is a tragedy, not only because it's not taking the Bible seriously, And not only because it's not taking the miraculous power of God seriously, but because it has theological implications that undermine the very purpose of Jesus' incarnation. Let me give you three reasons why it's necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin. Three reasons why if we waffle on this miraculous um, intervention of God that we undo things that have significant consequences to the gospel of salvation. The first is, the first reason why Jesus needed to be born of a virgin is so that he was not involved in Adam's guilt. So that he was not involved in Adam's guilt. Adam was not a mere individual, but he was the federal head and representative of all his posterity. So when Adam violated the covenant which God had made with him, he brought a curse, not just upon himself, but also upon all his descendants. If Jesus had descended from Adam in the natural way of a, of a man and woman coming together to make a child, then Jesus would have been conceived under the same sentence of condemnation that everyone else who descends from Adam is under. Instead of becoming a deliverer to others, Jesus would have been needing a deliverer for himself if he was not born of a virgin. But because Jesus uh, did not have a human father, he escaped being involved with Adam's guilt. He was not a son of Adam in that sense. The second reason why it was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin is so that he didn't partake in Adam's corruption. Now, this is related to the, to the first reason, but sufficiently different to warrant a separate explanation. Whereas the first reason has to do with inheriting Adam's guilt, the second reason has to do with inheriting Adam's corruption or uh, the corrupt human nature that Adam passed on. You see, when Adam fell, not only did he fall under the condemnation of sin, but the depravity of sin corrupted every member of his body, including every faculty of his mind and soul. And we're told in Genesis 5 that Adam begot sons in his own likeness. And so he didn't begot sons in the likeness of God as Adam was originally created, but rather he begot sons in his own likeness as a fallen creature. And stark evidence of this truth can be seen with Adam's very first offspring. Cain grew in his hatred, his sinful hatred toward Abel, and eventually murdered him because he was created in the image. He he was begotten in the image of his own father, Adam. And so the first reason Jesus needed to be born of a virgin has to do with his legal standing, his position of guilt or innocence or righteousness. It was necessary that Jesus did not share in Adam's guilt. The second reason has to do with Jesus' ability to walk in obedience to the Lord. It was necessary that he didn't receive the corrupt human nature that was in bondage to sin. And the third reason has to do with the plan of salvation 
and that it might be fulfilled in Christ. As we've already noted, uh, the very first promise, which announced the future birth um, of, of the Messiah, identified Jesus as the seed of the woman. And we may not fully understand exactly what that means if it wasn't for the fact that God has given other prophecies in the scriptures to shed greater light upon what that means. And I'm thinking especially of the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, which clearly says that the virgin shall, give, that shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then later in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, we are assured in Matthew 1, 22 and 23 that this Isaiah passage has an exact and literal fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. Let me read to you what it says. So all this was done, catch these words. So all this was done, referring to Jesus and his virgin birth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so Jesus needed to be born of a virgin because that's what the scriptures prophesied of him. That was what the, the people of Israel and the people of God would be looking at in order to identify who the Messiah was. He would be born of a virgin. Now imagine, imagine how this announcement from Gabriel was landing upon the, uh, Mary's heart and mind. Um, she, she wasn't, uh, she had just learned that she was going to conceive a son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? She's a young lady. Most biblical scholars believe she was probably in her mid to late teens. Um, she's in her home. This angel barges in. He's telling her information she had never contemplated before. And she just learns that she's going to uh, conceive a son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And she just learned that, she's, that this is going to happen uh, to her before she becomes married to Joseph. Before she becomes married to Joseph. If Elizabeth thought that she was uh, you know, a reproach among people because she was barren, consider the reproach Mary was about to experience by being pregnant out of wedlock. It's not very difficult to imagine what a woman of lesser faith might have done in that same situation. A woman of lesser faith would probably say to Gabriel, uh, you want me to do what? what do you think my fiance is going to say about this? Do you really think he's going to believe me when I tell him that I'm pregnant because a glory cloud descended upon me? And even if he does believe me, what will the people of the community think? What will my friends think? People are going to be saying terrible things about me. They're going to be whispering behind my back, speculating who the father of my baby is. Is this what you are calling being highly favored? Does God really want my reputation to suffer this way? Does he really want me to have to endure this type of reproach? But Mary's response is nothing like that. That's because she's a woman of strong faith. And people of strong faith are aware that their personal comfort is not as important as their personal obedience to God. 
and their approval from, and the approval of man is not as important as their approval from God. So Mary was willing to trust that the Lord will work out all the details, however difficult and confusing they may seem. And she was willing, and, and she was willing to um, allow for his grace to be sufficient for her to get through whatever challenges and difficulties may lie in her immediate or distant future. Uh, and so she says to Gabriel in verse 38, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, right? Behold, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it, let it be to me according to your word. She doesn't protest. She doesn't ask for a different uh, scenario. She says, let it be to me according to your word. Brothers and sisters, Mary's response was a response of faith. From the beginning to the end, she was believing what God was telling her through the angel Gabriel, and she was trusting that his plan will bring the Messiah into this world. Yet, this doesn't mean that it was easy for Mary. It doesn't, it, it, it must have taken a lot of courage for her to, to face the fears that she most certainly was experiencing, to uh, trust in the faith of what was still unknown, which, was, which were many things. And in this regard, we, we should notice how graciously Gabriel was, to, was at encouraging Mary to make this right decision. Uh, before letting her make her reply, Gabriel told Mary, two pieces of truth, two pieces of information that were intended to embolden her faith, to assist her with making a faithful reply. First, he told her that her aunt Elizabeth had conceived a child in her old age. And Mary would not have known this because we read in Luke one twenty four that Elizabeth had hidden herself in her home ever since she had discovered she was pregnant. Uh, the, 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 the point that Gabriel was making is that the same spirit that, was, that had accomplished the miracle in Elizabeth's body is the one that would accomplish the miracle in Mary's body. And the second piece of information that Gabriel shared is, is to remind her of a very important truth about God. He says in verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. For with God nothing will be impossible. As we see in Gabriel's gracious treatment of Mary in our sermon text, we should recognize that, that this is God's customary manner of dealing with us in our weaknesses. The Lord regularly and routinely reminds us that our lives are not about our own doing, but about his doing. Yes, there are all sorts of things that are outside of our control. Yes, there are all sorts of things that our enemies can do to us. Yes, there are all, all sorts of things that can go wrong if the future depends upon us. But these things have not been left to us. These things were never in our control in the past. They are not in our control in the present, and they will not be in our control in the future. This is because they have been, are, and always will be in God's control. Remember the meaning of the word sovereign? God is sovereign, which means he has supreme power and authority. There is nothing in all creation that is 
uh, able to prevent God from doing what he has determined to do, which is why Gabriel is able to say with confidence, um, with God, nothing is impossible. Right? You can't say what Gabriel said in verse 37 if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. And if God is not sovereign, um, that there are things which are impossible for God. That the, the two statements are synonymous. So the question I have for you, brothers and sisters, is do you believe what Gabriel said about the impossibility of, of, of things which, <laughs> that, that with God nothing is impossible? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? I'm not asking you if you mentally consent to the statement as a theoretical principle. I'm asking if you believe in the depth of your soul that nothing is impossible for God. I'm asking if you believe this to the degree that it makes a difference in the plans and decisions you make every day. I'm asking if your Christian walk is impacted and directed by the truth that God is sovereign over all creation. You've heard of the butterfly effect, right? The butterfly effect is the idea that small, seemingly trivial events will ultimately result in much larger consequences. It's said that when a butterfly flaps its wings in India, the tiny change in air pressure that's created by the butterfly's wings will eventually cause a tornado in Iowa. So do you believe that God is sovereign over the butterflies? Do you believe that he exercises power and authority over butterflies so that tornadoes develop whenever and wherever the Lord desires them to appear? To really believe that nothing is impossible for God is an aid to your inward peace. Questions and doubts about situations in your life will often arise in your mind. Our faith is often very feeble. Our knowledge is often clouded with the unknown. But the antidote, or an, an antidote to our doubting, to our worrying, to our anxiety, is a sure conviction in the supreme power and authority of God. With him who spoke the world into being and formed it out of nothing, everything is possible. There is no sin too heinous to be pardoned. The blood of, uh, the blood of Christ cleanses all sin. There is no heart too hard or wicked to be changed. The heart of stone can be made into a heart of flesh. There is no work too hard for Christians to do. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. There is no trial too difficult to endure. The grace of God is sufficient for you. There is no promise too great to be fulfilled. Christ's words never pass away and what he has promised he is able to perform. And there is no difficulty too great for you to overcome. If God is for us, who shall be against us? Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. An old time preacher said that faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. 
Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. So may you experience the comfort of that pillow, brothers and sisters, and may your sleep be sweet. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.